Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs from Muhammad. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please, practice excellent self and community care while listening. What's the history of settlers in the U.S., especially white ones, playing Indian? Some listeners may be new to conversations about this topic that are grounded in history, context, and an analysis of power. So it's important to recognize that some folks have been explicitly reflecting on and publishing about this phenomena for decades. One such scholar is today's guest on Feral Visions, Dr. Philip Deloria. You may have seen him in the documentary More Than a Word, a film about Native American-based sports mascots and the Washington Redskins. Philip J. DeLoria is the Carol Smith Rosenberg Collegiate Professor in the College of Literature, Science, and the Arts at the University of Michigan, where he has appointments in the Departments of History and American Culture and the Programs in Environment and Native American Studies. He received his PhD in American Studies from Yale University in 1994 and came to Michigan in 2001 following six years at the University of Colorado Boulder. He's the former associate dean for undergraduate education and the past director of the Department of American Culture and teaches a wide array of courses ranging from environmental history, American Indian history, and American studies methods to food studies, songwriting, and big history. Professor Deloria's research focuses on the social, cultural, and political histories of the relations between American Indians and the United States. His prize-winning 1998 book, Playing Indian, traced Indian play from the Boston Tea Party to the New Age movement, while his 2004 book, Indians in Unexpected Places, examined the ideologies surrounding Indian people in the early 20th century and the ways Native Americans challenged them through sports, travel, automobility, and film and musical performance. It won the 2004 John C. Ewers Prize for Ethno-History. In addition to two co-edited volumes, he's the author of numerous essays and articles. Forthcoming in 2017 is American Studies, A User's Guide, co-authored with Alexander Olson. 
Deloria is a former president of the American Studies Association, a trustee of the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of the American Indian, and an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Society of American Historians, the American Antiquarian Society, Phi Beta Kappa, and Phi Kappa Phi. He served on executive committees, governing councils, and editorial boards for a number of professional organizations, and frequently serves as a program reviewer and outside consultant for academic program development and assessment. Dr. Deloria, thank you so much for being able to come through to the show. I'm sincerely appreciative of your time. How's it going this afternoon? It's great, and it's my pleasure to join you. Mm. Thank you very much for that. Uh, so I have so sincerely appreciated your work over the years and actually first read your book Playing Indian when I was 20 in an American studies class in college. And I remember it giving me a cultural vocabulary that was so important in California at the time. Um, so I really do, first and foremost, just want to start off by really expressing my gratitude for your scholarship, um, particularly in sharing scholarship in a way that for non-specialists and for folks even outside of the academy um, is really helpful in terms of making meaning about the world and our relationships with one another in the world. So I just want to start off by sincerely thanking you for that. Well, I appreciate it because, you know, not all people have found it to be, you know, legible and uh, assimilable. There's a page 21 and 22 is actually ripped out of the book at, in, the, in the University of Michigan Library. Um, and students have said, that's the page where they get frustrated. <laughs> so for some what? people... It doesn't scan so easily and it starts right early, you know, early on in the book, but. <laughs> Fascinating. Now I want to know what was on page 21 and 22. Do you know what it was about that passage in particular? You know, it's the stuff about otherness and sort of interior and exterior others. And it's, uh, you know, I mean, you read it today and it has a kind of 90s theory sort of feel to it, you know, that I probably wouldn't write it the same way now. But um, I think that's the place where people started to get a little maybe frustrated. It's where the storytelling kind of stops and the kind of theorizing and the structuring starts to begin. Mm, got it. Sure, I could imagine that. Definitely some resistance on that front. And so very interesting the way that people understand theory and associate it with the academy when in actuality, of course, the academy has no monopoly on theorizing. So, mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you want us to keep talking like this? Do we just chat about things? Is that it? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, totally open to a sort of informal dialogue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems important to me, you know, to sort of not let theory be the the property of sort of high-end, high-gloss French, you know, kinds of stuff. Right? I mean, theory is more, nothing more than a kind of generalization where we take our specific case and we make a larger argument in in, in an effort to communicate with other people. Right. I mean, this is how it is. And, and theory then becomes really something we should think of being about um, transportable. It's transportable and it's a conversation piece rather than a kind of set of privileged knowledges. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it does have its own linguistic vocabulary. I, I get that. But mm -hmm. yeah, to be sure. Right. There's a time and a place for jargon um, for all of the specialists and uh it is interesting how sometimes it can be almost a wee bit elitist or classist to presume that something is mm -hmm. inaccessible or unduly theoretical when in actuality theory is birthed from practice and from social movements and from communities uh, and all the places where knowledge is produced from recipes all the time, right? Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Well, on the topic of that text in particular, I know that not all of our listeners may be familiar with it. So would you be so kind as to share with us, um, so several decades ago, what inspired you initially to write the book Plain Indian? You know, I mean, it's a book that came to me literally in about 30 seconds of this kind of mind explosion that I've never had before or since. So I was sitting in a class. Uh, I was a teaching assistant for Bill Cronin. He was lecturing about the Woodcraft Indians, this group of kind of progressive reformers. Um, Campfire Girls come out of this. Boy Scouts comes out of this. And Ernest Thompson Seton, who ran this group, used to dress young boys up as Indians and run them around his estate cook a big steak dinner for them. And this was part of his philosophy of successful child rearing in a kind of modern sort of world. So this slide came up and it had a picture of all these kids dressed up like Indians. And the person sitting, sitting next to me, Gunther Pack, very fine labor historian said, hey, that reminds me, have you ever heard of this group called the Improved Order of Red Men? Which was a 19th century and into the present day uh, fraternal order in which the participants dress up like Indians, and they take Indian names. And curiously, I said to Gunther, I have heard of them. As a matter of fact, I grew up in Colorado. I grew up skiing at Winter Park Ski Area. And in Empire, the town where you stop to get a chocolate shake on the way back, there's an improved <laughs> order of red men lodge, which I had gone to look at and at one point looked at the architectural plans for the lodge in the University of Colorado archives. So I was sitting there, and now I had this picture of Indian kids dressed up like Indians and of the improved order of red men dressing up like Indians. And I flashed on the Boston Tea Party, people dressing like, up like Indians. And I had come from Boulder, Colorado, um, where lots of new age people dressed up like Indians. And, all, and it literally just kind of exploded and unfolded in my mind that this wasn't just a set of one-offs. You know, um, If you only see it as kind of, well, that's interesting, that's curious, it doesn't really add up to much. But if you see it as a kind of pervasive practice in American culture, across time and across space, then all of a sudden it takes on more meaning. And that's what I tried to do in the book was explore what it meant and why Americans seem so interested, not just in imagining Indians, but in dressing up like them, which takes us all the way to the present moment with mascots and, and all sorts of other things like that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that background and that synopsis. Uh, so I know that the book was written in, what was it, 1998. And so I'm curious to know some of the ways in which you might extend or complicate the arguments that you were making and the ideas that you were interrogating from 98 through today. So has something changed? Has much remained the same? I mean, the, the two fundamental pieces of the book, the book really unfolds into two halves. The first half is really about nationalist, national kinds of identities, right? And so it begins with the American Revolution and the ways in which to become an American you would have to stop being British somehow. And it happens very quickly for American colonists. So one of the mechanisms I argue that helped that happen was people imagine Indians as being Aboriginal, imagine themselves as being like Indians and Aboriginal, perform these kinds of identities in street mobs and Boston Tea Parties and things like that. And in doing that sort of constituted the grounds for an American national kind of identity. So, and I think that's a pervasive kind of thread that just keeps going throughout our history and we can see it, you know, in many cases today. The second piece was really focused around the turn of the 20th century and it was more about the kind of crisis of modernity that led Ernest Thompson Seton to dress up these boys as, as Indians. And it had everything to do with 
the end of the frontier and the anxieties about immigration and urbanization and the sort of transformation of America into something that didn't look familiar to 19th century Americans and the invention of adolescence um, in 1904 by G. Stanley Hall, more or less. You know, and so there's this kind of moment during that crisis of modernity where to get back somehow to something more authentic and, and primitive in a good way as an object of desire, right, led people to transform what had been a longstanding practice of dressing up like Indians to give it new kinds of meanings. So, so if you track that across the 20th century and you track this thing from the 19th and the 20th centuries, I think you've got two kind of fundamental pillars for how we think about it. It's really about constituting different kinds of identities, national identities prominently, but also others. And it's about dealing with sort of the anxieties of the modern world. It's a, in some ways a not only a distraction, it's not just that, it's also a self-constitution, right? A kind of making of oneself as modern through the primitive. And of course, this is what artists end up doing through much of the 20th century. Um, so in those contexts, I'd say things look more or less the same. And that's partly because those are two big structural arguments about things that extend over long periods of time. And, you know, it's the book's 20 years old now. So has there been the occasion where things would have changed even more? You know, not so much, right? I mean, the last chapter of the book makes this kind of postmodern argument that meaning has now flown away and, and everything is kind of crazy. And, you know, now that argument feels a little dated, you know, to me. And but that argument was never headed in the direction of being this will be a third structure, you know, a third way of thinking about it. And now that whole sort of argument, I mean, my friend Paul Anderson always calls it that withered thing we once referred to as postmodernism, <laughs> right? It seems to have a little less sort of urgency and salience to it right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're more in the sort of post-postmodern for folks for whom that was a useful referent to begin with. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was great. It was great in the sense of, I mean, it was great as mind candy, you know, on the one hand. It was fun to think with and to play with. I think it was very good and very important for the the sort of challenging and the deconstruction of master narratives, which oftentimes bolstered imperialism and colonialism and all kinds of things, and which oftentimes went, um, you know, unquestioned, you know. So, I mean, there were good things about that moment, you know, for sure. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. <laughs> sure. Yeah, fascinating on so many fronts, and it seems like particularly meaningful, somewhat akin to post-structuralism as well, to the extent that you were vested in modernity or structuralism to begin with. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly. And I mean, I think this has been one of the things that's been interesting to me in thinking about American Indian people relative to these discourses. So, you know, I mean, my second book, Indians in Unexpected Places, about Indians doing stuff that white people don't expect them to do. And, and one of the things that's maybe not as clearly articulated in that book as it could be is that that whole notion of modernity or a moment of structuralism or of modernism is perceptible, I think, to Indian people as a category that matters to white people, right? But it's not that modernity actually, I mean, I, I've, I've often said, like, I don't really believe in alternative modernities or uneven modernities. It's like, if we're gonna name the category we all get to be in it, right? And we're not going to sort of set up these sort of differentials. We all get to be in it. But the fact is, is that it's just a category. Mm -hmm. Now, it's a deep and meaningful category, and it's an important category. But I think there's many, many instances in which American Indian people don't have to see modernity in order to have a politics, in order to have a kind of position on their own lives, in order to have a self-reflexiveness, a philosophical or theoretical kind of position. 
why should we say that at the turn of the 20th century, Indian people need to think about modernity, to think about themselves? They absolutely don't, right? And they don't really, except as they see it as a visible thing for white people to which then they can respond and work within. Mm -hmm. It's kind of discursive formation for them. Right. Oh, I'm so stoked that we're going here in dialogue because actually just rereading some of your writing within the past week in anticipation of this dialogue, the elements around postmodernism that you were just speaking to stood out to me in a way that they didn't when I was 20, first looking at your text, for sure. And it is so relevant, actually, within the context of the way in which people's perhaps as a part of our internal colonization, yearn for an association with whether it is being developed when you've actually been underdeveloped based upon the people that then monopolize the notion of development, right? It kind of echoes and is similar in some ways to these other sort of teleological forms of storytelling or narrativizing um, that were never beneficial for some of us to begin with and actually contingent upon precisely the opposite sort of direction that, you know, some of us get to be modern because some of y'all definitely aren't modern. So then for the people that were always already framed as not modern or as primitive, so to speak, or whatever the framing or construct might have been, to then be like, oh no, but we want to have our version of modernity too, kind of seems like you're seeding the terms of the debate to begin with, which is, you know, we can imagine so much more fruitfully than that, right? Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And I, the way that this echoes and mirrors, right, because it's, it's not just a sort of like first level kind of, kind of, you know, mimicry that's going on, right? It echoes and then echoes and then echoes back and back upon itself until it becomes so complicated. Like, I want modernity too, 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 right? You know, mm-hmm. and before you know it, it actually becomes kind of hard to sort it out. The primary stuff becomes visible, but it's the echo, right? Because the, the thing that embeds itself into your soul, right? Mm-hmm. That's, and that's where in some ways, that's the thing that's less amenable to an analytical kind of critique. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, this is subtly gesturing towards one of the effects that I don't see a lot of people and certainly don't know that a lot of our listeners are definitely sort of entirely clear around of, say, the phenomena of some, especially white settlers, playing Indian and its ramifications for actual indigenous folks. So then, right, what does the construct of other folks based upon certain stereotypes and generalizations that are always already racist and colonial to begin with, then why does that representation matter, particularly when it comes to the actual peoples that are being caricatured, right? Right, and that's where the that's where the echo kind of comes out. You just gave me that vocabulary, by the way, and I want to thank you. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, because you know it's like you say, okay, this is your picture of what an Indian is. I'm going to have to perform this picture to you in order to be legible to you, right? Um, but then it's the second and third and fourth order, right, where now I internalize the picture I presented to you, or now I have to present it over to you. And all of a sudden we're presenting to each other and the next thing you know, right, it's buried, right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes really deep. And then we re-essentialize it as tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And some piece of it, I mean, it's ideological in the sense, right, that it is true, but it is also not true, right? And unevenly weighted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sort of Terry Eagleton's terms, right? Around that, yeah. Right. Actually, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the novel from several years back. Is it called The Illusionist? That is just fascinating. If you get the chance to check it out, that 
tells the story of this young South Asian man, as I recollect it could be during the period of the British colonial rule in what would now be present day India, who sort of attempted to pass as white as a survival mechanism, dealing with all of the adversity that he was struggling with in this particular moment in time, and then was able to engage in this mimicry and performance of whiteness so well that then in a moment in his life later when he was in love with this white woman and she was all of a sudden going native, so to speak, and trying to get with an Indian man. And then he's like, no, actually I'm Indian, I promise. And she's like, please stop. Like you could never be Indian. You're so obviously white. And him just being like, what have I done? And just really revealing. It's so subtle, the kind of micro dynamics with which folks are so often performing based upon the presumption of how they anticipate being legible to other people amidst this field of stereotypes that we're saturated in that overdetermine our imagination. Uh, and so there's really a lot to sort of unpack and parse out there as opposed to just kind of naturalizing or normalizing our presumptions about what an authentic indigenous person and or Indian and or whomever actually is, right? Right, right. I mean, this is where, you know, for me, it's always been super useful to sort of think about like the kind of dialogic relation between identity on the one hand and subjectivity on the other hand and, you know, kind of interiority and exteriority and performance and self-constitution, right? All of those different kinds of things that end up kind of in a, in a relation, but not exactly the same, right? That there's, you know, there is an interior kind of thing in in this. I mean, this book is on our bookshelves. My wife is the fiction reader, and I'm just <laughs> history and dissertations. Sure. Um, but I can, I'm, I can almost walk to where this book is. I know exactly. <laughs> but there's this kind of moment, right, where, um, you know, what you describe is, hey, there's a subjectivity that says, oh no, I'm Indian, right? I'm just passing, right? I'm performing an identity. Right. But the identity takes on such salience, such materiality in the world, right, that it actually become takes on a realism, a, a reality, not just a realism, but a reality kind of of its own that overwrites the subjectivity that still sits underneath. Mm-hmm. Right. And that sort of sense, I mean, that feels to me like the thing that's so interesting in how we end up constituting ourselves on a daily basis. Right. Because part of it is in is, in fact, a kind of performance of identity that may or may not sit comfortably and it's got all kinds of motives, right, around how we, the subjective voice that's, that's going in our heads, right, which we always tend to read as being the authentic voice, mm-hmm. but which, you know, we probably shouldn't do that, right? <laughs> we should recognize the ways in which it, it wants to masquerade for us as an authentic voice, right, in relation to all this other stuff, right, that helps constitute us. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you elaborate on, within the context of exactly what you're just talking about, how power and various forms of power play into representation, especially when it comes to whether it's, say, folks self-exoticizing or self-tokenizing based upon these essentialist notions that are laden in, again, the representations that are just the sort of cultural water that we're saturated in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, for me, it's like the goal of, you know, kind of good analysis is to get to the question of power, right? Mm -hmm. And that's in some ways why we end up going to theoretical kinds of levels, right? So we can see, we can, I can tell you a story, right, in which power is exercised in a really explicit kind of way, right? The agents of the state come and they take you away, you know, or, (laughs) you know, whatever, right? 
you're sitting mm-hmm. in a room and someone exercises power over you and sort of silences you, right? I mean, so there's there's all of this kind of stuff that happens. But but one of the reasons I think why we always want to kind of imagine power rising up in a kind of theoretical or analytical kind of register, because that's where it takes on its its most um, salient kinds of forms, right? It's it is good to talk about power on the ground in material terms, but it's also good to talk about it in bigger terms and bigger structural kinds of terms. And that's where I think you know the politics of representation end up intersecting with the politics of, you know, with a, with a kind of harder edge politics of materiality. I mean, I oftentimes kind of, kind of, you know, edge into being kind of Gramscian, mm-hmm. right? In sort of sense where like culture, 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 sure. representation, yeah. this is where it's happening, you know? And, and if you go that route, then you're saying, well, like, what's the role of representation in power? The role of representation in power is to keep people from busting out in the streets, right? Mm-hmm and from exercising their own forms of material power. So when you're thinking in those terms, you know, right, when hegemony has broken down, because mm-hmm. it's when the cops come out, right? Mm-hmm. It's, when, it's when the discourse and representational power and these kinds of things don't actually, you know, contain, right, mm-hmm. sufficiently, right? And things start to kind of burst out, which then feeds back and says, we have to take representation seriously, mm-hmm. right? So, so often the critique about sort of representational politics say in American Indian country, for example, is don't you want to go fix the problems with fetal alcohol syndrome? You know, don't you want to fix the problems of poverty? Don't you want to get materialist on this stuff? And you're like, well, of course you do, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, as Gramsci said, any struggle is across a multiple, it's a multiple front kind of deal. Right. But if you think, that you can address those materialist things without addressing culture and representation, you know, you're totally wrong, mm-hmm, right? It's like, mm-hmm. that's the, the pictures that are, that are in the heads of the people who are exercising power actually channel and shape the ways that power gets exercised. So I, I'm on the board at the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian, and we're engaged in this long education project. And, you know, some part of it is, you know, let's think about how we talk about American Indian political sovereignty and the U.S. Constitution. Where does that take place? At the high school level, maybe, at best. But the stuff that ends up kind of mattering more is what happens during November, during American Indian Month in second grade, you know? And what even happens before that? Because by the time you get to second grade, the pictures are already in your head, right? The kids already know what they're thinking. So cultural politics, you know, ends up being, you know, developmental psychologically developmental politics and it's very very hard to imagine how you intervene you know at the level of the family right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but since we're throwing out a lot of high theory stuff we should go right back to altusser who said right Thank the family you. is yeah. not the physical state apparatus right there, I mean, yes <laughs> so it's like the family ends up being the site of reproduction you know of this stuff mm-hmm. so much god it's just great i feel like i'm back in the 90s again and so <laughs> Just a little blast from the past, and why wouldn't we? Well, <laughs> they, they just I don't make it like they used to. <laughs> they sort of don't, you know. And, and I don't know. I mean, for me, like, there's it's not like there's not great theoretical stuff happening sure. out there. But for oh, me, yeah. this stuff, this stuff has always been the core, right? You triangulate right. Yeah. Altusser, Gramsci, and Foucault, mm. and you throw mm. in kind of you know different different other angular kind of Marxist traditions, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden you get all this really interesting. Frutal, you know, frutal, fruit. <laughs> not, not, not fruitful, not frugal. Fruitful, <laughs> but not uh-huh. fruitile. Not, 
futile. Uh-huh. Maybe it's futile. Maybe it's futile. I don't know. Wow, it's, that's, it's that's cool. a, a produce-related ripoff of productive. I really appreciate that <laughs> pun. Thank you in this context. <laughs> I, I wish it were really a pun. It's just me sort of like, blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. <laughs> No, I'm so grateful that you're bringing that into the dialogue because, again, to make crystal clear to folks, particularly in this socio-cultural political moment, if there's a cop in your head, so to speak, why do you need the cop on the corner with M16s, right? More effective manifestations of police states would be that internal colonization that has us so self-censored, so edited, that you're not actually in a place to be able to wage any kind of viable revolt or protest in any kind of capacity because you're incapable of actually even being able to visualize what that might look like or how you might be able to engage in a more generative way. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's like, I mean, I do this little thought experiment with my students, like, okay, it's three in the morning, you're stopped at a stoplight, the light is red, there's nobody around, it doesn't change, mm-hmm. the light's probably broken, why <laughs> Why don't you drive through it, right? Because you've got that little cop on your shoulder, mm-hmm. right? Interp- mm-hmm. Interpolating you, mm-hmm. right? And telling you what the limits of your possibilities are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and what's going on in your head is an ex- exercise of rationality mm-hmm. of saying, like, these are my material conditions. I will drive through the light, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you got the other thing going on, right? I mean, it's like, it's so, it's so apparent. I mean, and it, it is the challenge of, maybe it's the challenge of all time, right? Is to sort of like, think how you act in relation to a critical consciousness, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And on that front, I certainly see some signs, particularly in some social movement spaces of folks beginning to understand in the U.S. the ways in which, say, social justice rhetoric and frameworks are potentially incommensurate with that of decolonial frameworks and beginning to kind of realize, wait a minute, maybe Native folks aren't just a minority. Maybe we've all been minoritized. Maybe actually settler colonialism doesn't start with, for example, the origin story of the transatlantic slave trade, but to take seriously all of the facets and dynamics of bringing to bear that history that is the present in this moment in time, all of that seems so clearly to enter into the equation when it comes to the way that people are playing Indian today. So whether it's the sort of settler, especially white, deep yearning for re-enchantment or for re-landing, or for, of course, as we've been speaking to, authenticity, um, how do you see those sort of political moments that we find ourselves situated in today and being on the kind of cusp of particular conversations that of course are happening in some spaces and have always been happening in some spaces, but it feels like are almost, you know, I don't want to preemptively say reaching some kind of critical mass, but that people do, uh, particularly it's important to name in light of the resistance camps at Standing Rock be receiving the visibility that they did within the last year how do you find that political context shifting the way you observe people playing Indian today? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. It's a um, super complicated question, too, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so in part, like, I completely agree with you, right? There's a, there's a kind of growing consciousness of what we could call a settler colonial kind of critique. I mean, it's, it's better now than it used to be. On the other hand, I was teaching last fall, intro to native, as Standing Rock was sort of, you know, kind of winding and unwinding, right? Um, I was teaching intro to Native American studies and environmental history. 
And it was really interesting to shuttle between those two classes and sort of go into my Native Studies class and be able to talk about, let's talk about the 1851 Treaty and the 68 Treaty and the 77 Agreement and these kinds of things. And going into environmental history class and finding that students were, I don't want to say resistant to this, but like it was a lot of labor, right? It was a lot of work to try to understand treaties. And in some ways, it was kind of easier to talk about like water is life or sacred space or religious spaces, mm-hmm. right? So in some ways, those kinds of things, which if you were to take seriously a kind of sovereignty argument, which doesn't always align with the decolonial argument, we should be really pretty yeah. clear about Right. But if you would take seriously the sovereignty argument, there's a there's a bit of heavy lifting to be done. Right. To understand why this swath of land, why this relation to the reservation, why the Army Corps of Engineers? What, what about the Pick Sloan plan? Right. There was a huge sort of chunk of Indian history that I think on the environmental side was easily elided by familiar tropic kinds of um, kinds of things, which were important. I mean, don't get me wrong, right? Sacred space, absolutely sure. important. Water, mm-hmm. absolutely important. But there was something else going on there that felt to me like it was not quite where I would have hoped it would have been. And I guess I've seen this, I've seen this around the, the ways that the narrative of immigration, mm-hmm. for example, which at one time, I mean, you should tell me what you think about this. I may not be right about this, right? I mean, we're just thinking together, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, at one time it felt to me like the immigration narrative had a bit more of its sort of own kind of place, right, in American structuring narratives. So you had a kind of story of settlement and conquest, which was, you know, kind of tamped down a little bit. And you had the story of slavery, which was really important in the Civil War and everything. And, and then you had immigration, right, which was this other kind of story. And immigration sort of held out the hope right, for assimilation and for melting pots and salad bowls and for <laughs> kind of a futurity, a kind of an American futurity, right, around immigration. And now that, that discourse feels like it's been crunched down, right, a lot of, in a lot of cases. Whereas the African-American narrative, right, from slavery to freedom, placing African-American people into the narrative of slavery, right, as active agents resisting, right? I mean, it feels to me like if we were to go back to the third grade and the sixth grade and things like that, that's become the counter narrative that American teachers are are happy and proud to teach their students, right? So they say, oh, we used to tell you this story about the city on the hill and the Puritans. Ha, that's not right. Mm-hmm. I always tell you the story about the frontier and, and settlement. And, hey, you know, that's not quite right. And, you know, maybe we used to tell you the story about the Civil War and the, the kind of the, the original sin of slavery and the bloody redemption of white people killing white people in order to kind of create a new, more perfect union. Man, that's not quite right either. Now, let me, I'm going to tell you something that's really radical and revisionist. And it's the African-American story of the movement from slavery to freedom to civil rights mm-hmm. with an, an implication of human rights, which has a much more convoluted kind of genealogy. And I wouldn't actually make that as a kind of linear claim, but I think often discursively, it, it, it kind of works that way. You know, there's, sure. a, there's a sort of sense of it, you know, kind of moving in that, in that direction. So that's become a really dominant kind of narrative. And interesting to, to me, it's felt like the, the immigrant narrative has been sucked into that narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, what's the goal? The goal is legibility in the eyes of the state, whereas you can mobilize the laws of the state in order to, you know, kind of claim some kind of right for, you know, before the state and before the institution. So what that means is like now all of a sudden you've got all the energy that might have been floating around around those two narratives. Mm-hmm. And because we care, you know, many people care at this moment about really thinking hard about immigration and protecting the kinds of legacies and thinkings that we've been doing about 
about immigration in addition to immigrants themselves, mm-hmm. right, that all of a sudden the energy there feels like it's kind of sucked a little bit of the oxygen out of the room around settler colonialism mm-hmm. and the settler colonial critique, you know? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, right, from an academic, from the academic side, you've got a, another kind of parallel critique of settler colonialism, which is to say, where's the active agents of, of Indian, Indian people, you know, in this, right? This is a kind of reorientation around kind of state and cultural power. So it's a, it feels to me like it's a super complicated landscape at the, at the present moment. And I don't know quite what that means in terms of like, if we went back to the core of this sort of idea about playing Indian, like, I don't know quite what that means or I haven't really thought through how much weight I want to put on all those different kinds of changes and transformations relative to what the practice looks today. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so rich and evocative of so much to me, you know, it has everything to do with the so-called politics of inclusion, right? So we could kind of superficially invoke this binary between reform and revolution. So this notion of so many folks that have been minoritized um, or oppressed peoples just trying to fight for the toxic crumbs of the pre-existing pie as opposed to baking a new pie that could be nourishing and nutrient-dense for all of us. But if your imagination has been so foreclosed, you know, it's evocative of that sort of competitive phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. So that um, being very, having lots of healthy skepticism about the politics of inclusion is something that I talk with my students about on a regular basis, as opposed to just presuming people are talking about fill in the blank thing and or group of people, thus this must be pedestalized as great, attributing all the positive value judgments to it, as opposed to just sitting back and reflecting and seeing all of the other layers and tones of what's actually being created when narratives are elevated to particular levels culturally. And so I definitely see um, those phenomena as so deeply interconnected that you were speaking to. So for example, I mean, we could talk about Obama, the brownwashing, right, or blackwashing, so to speak, of U.S. empire, strengthening empire, right? So it's the diversification of oppression, the diversification of an imperialist settler colony that strengthens that thing unto itself, um, as opposed to, say, if we're sort of individualistic or even looking to collectivist narratives presuming, oh, this is great for fill-in-the-blank minoritized group of people mm-hmm. and or this individual in terms of their careerism, right, or that, you know, being opportunistic in terms of climbing a particular ladder. Sure, there's a lot going on. We can be nuanced and complex and honoring all of these facets. And at the same time, you're actually strengthening whatever the institution is that you're opting into. And so that's something that I would love to see communities getting hip to sooner rather than later so that then we're not just engaging in this incrementalism and these forms of visioning of presuming it's always already automatically positive for any oppressed person Mm -hmm. to be in the military, be in the Supreme Court, be the president also, but imagining alternatives. And then in addition to that, not buying into the kind of divisiveness of presuming we can only engage in storytelling around liberation for one group of people at the expense of another, right, that military tactic of divide and conquer that presumes that they're discrete categories and doesn't interrogate the way in which the categories have been created to begin with. So there's a lot going on there, if you ask me. And then also, right, the way that so some 
minoritized groups of people are brought into the kind of national fold serving to exclude other groups of people, right? So say within the national imaginary, I definitely see in my lifetime folks, especially white folks, so yearning to show that they're not racist by being supportive of individual folks that are racialized as black. And that's so often at the expense of, you see, we're not racist because we love Obama, but refugees, that's scary, right? So putting those things in conversation with one another, right? Right, absolutely. It's it's not an evil temptation, right, to go to the, the individual level. It's just an insufficient temptation, right? I mean, this is this is part of the problem. I think this kind of inclusionary sort of thing that you're talking about is, I mean, this feels exactly right to me. It's, um, and of course, you know, as we rewrite Obama in our memory, right, we will forget. I mean, we already have forgotten, right, all the things that, like, I'll never forget the stuff that like made me crabby about Bill Clinton, right? I'll never like that. But no, that's not true. I've actually forgotten some of it already, right? <laughs> and you know, the stuff where like, you know, during the Obama years where we could imagine thinking like, "Really? Are you going to do that? No, don't do that." Yeah, he did. Like that mm-hmm. stuff is going to be it's it's already fading, right? Yeah. It's already fading as we kind of reconstitute, you know, him as a figure, that as a moment, right? And sort of these these sort of now the sort of taxes tactics of inclusionism you know, that you're talking about, ah, now those just look like deeply and, and nostalgic and, and we, you know, yearn for those things which we were, you know, once critical of. I mean, it feels to me, I mean, I got to say this, the sovereignty thing is so interesting. And like, I've always been a culturalist, you know, a cultural historian and not a political or legal person. You know, it's like my dad did that. I didn't do that. I didn't want to do that. So I'm always starting from way behind, you know, on this. But I've been taking students right back to the citizenship clause, the three-fifths clause, and, and people are super proud to know what the three-fifths clause is. And they kind of mostly get it right, you know, but not totally, right? It's like, you know, so black people are three-fifths of a person, right? I'm like, oh, you know, you know kind of, you know, for the purposes of proportional representation. Like, but it's like the line before that about Indians not taxed, right? Mm-hmm. And the commerce clause and these things, which say on the one hand, in the Constitution, the Indians are extra constitutional, right? Yeah. They're out of the Constitution, which is one argument for sovereignty. And it's an argument that can either point you down the path of saying sovereignty is a Western construct and we're gonna and we end up working within the system, or saying, as say Tayaki Alfred and others do, say, like, no, actually that is the basis on which it's not a Western thing, and it is native defined, indigenous defined, mm-hmm. and it has had its own kind of life. And navigating and negotiating those things, I mean, within indigenous discourse and indigenous communities is a hard enough thing, much less sort of thinking like, okay, how does the American Constitution actually bite back against a kind of inclusionary sort of discourse, right? And does it, you know, does it do the dangerous, if when you start pursuing this, what's interesting I found with my students sometimes is when you pursue this with them, it leads them down the dangerous path in some ways of saying, oh, okay, there's two original sins in the American, slavery and conquest. And then pulling those things apart in ways that are in a that are not right analytically when what should be happening is the actual knitting together of these things around the foundations of Atlantic capitalism. I mean, mm-hmm. right? I'm not smart enough or deep enough into all of these literatures to kind of like dive into this in a super serious kind of way. Although this is kind of one of my projects over the next couple of years is to try to get there, you know, and think more and deeply about this, you know, with, with colleagues and friends. But I mean it feels like those are the kind of moments where the big master narratives kind of like are always haunting us as we move through the present, right? Right. 
have you done any work around Linebaugh and Redeker's The Many-Headed Hydra? You know, it's so interesting. So I taught that in historiography, in our historiography class last year. And and it really, and I, I did that. And then the very last book we taught was uh, Tom Segrew and Glenda Gilmore's sort of a U.S. history survey in which Indians are found in like one paragraph on page 20 something. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, this is, so it's a great sort of synthetic African-American kind of inflected and based sort of history. But it's like, it felt to me like, you, I don't think you can tell that. I think, I don't think you can write that history today. How can we write that history today? Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me. So yeah, so this sort of sense about like what, what Atlantic capitalism and primitive accumulation, you know, kind of looks like in the moment. I mean, this is what I've been thinking is that North America, when you think about indigenous forms of captivity, slavery, unfree labor, to kind of move categories around a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that North, North America is the most enslaved continent in the history of the world. For sure. So, I mean, we can imagine sort of centering slavery somewhere across the Atlantic or in the Atlantic, right? You know, or in the, the interstitial space of the Atlantic. But if you center it in a continental term, in continental terms, right, um, and de-emphasize the Atlantic, it feels to me like you get this super interesting different stories. And this is one of the things I want to sort of think, think more about, right, is you've got multiple forms of indigenous captivity and involuntary labor, right? Which range from like, oh, you're my kin, but I kind of half own you and, right? And I'm gonna treat you well, but, or you're my slave, I'm gonna kill you. All the way, and across a huge range of different kinds of tribal cultures, right? You've got all those things going on, right? And then you've got, you know, African slaveries and Middle Eastern slaveries and European slaveries and all of those kinds of things. And, and different kinds of forms, right? Um, like slavery is not quite the capacious enough word for this, right? So you get to the point where, all of a sudden, you've got multiple colonial forces coming in, each of which develops their own kinds of forms. So you've got encomienda, and you've got the French slave trade, and you've got the, you know. So one of the other things we read, you know, next to the many-headed headed hydro was Brent Rushforth's book on French slave trading. And, like, there's this kind of big explosion in my head where, you know, he says, oh, you know, what do the French call their Indian slaves? Pani. I'm like, well, what does that mean? It's Pawnees. <laughs> because they're like. They're capturing Indian people through an Indian slave trade network from sent from the Nebraska, from the Platte River. And those folks are going all the way through the French trade network and down to sugar plantations in the Caribbean. So you've got all of those different and you've got Russians, you know, who will capture family members and force labor out of men. Right. You've got every colonial power that comes in seems to have its own unique kinds of forms. And you've got convict convict labor and indentured servitude and, you know, all these. So so when you think about it in continental terms, right. To go to Linebond Redeker, right, what you get is this massive seizure of land and labor across these all these different kinds of strategies and structures that take shape when you center on North America and in which indigenous people are not just the, the victims of history, right, but are active agents in constructing and, and reimagining all these different kinds of things going on, right? So, I mean, it feels to me like there's the possibility to kind of reimagine some of this stuff. And maybe I just don't know this literature well enough and other people have kind of like thought about this in continental terms. But, you know, I think certainly like Andres Resendez's new book on the other slavery, you know, on Indian slavery seems to be like taking us a long ways down the road towards getting to a rethinking of some of this stuff. Right. Yeah, I have been so intrigued watching the conversation start to turn in these directions in a variety of different ways. And also more broadly, that's uh, somewhat related to this looking to to invoke a fraught sort of dichotomy, say, 
non-Indigenous, Black, and Indigenous, non-Black relations on a number of different fronts, particularly within the context of relanding projects right now, um, but in terms of looking to possibilities for solidarities, and of course that aren't always so dichotomous in the least. Um, just very interesting seeing some work happening on the ground in different areas around this as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that for me has sort of completely like churned up this sort of sense of, you know, the old racial categories and color and these kinds of things, you know, has been going to Australia, mm-hmm. where, where on the one hand, Aboriginal people kind of, in my consciousness, map as indigenous, but they map in a color kind of frame and as black. Right. And you find, you know, some of these early in in the 1920s, Australian Aboriginal groups who are basically Garveyites and they're seeing a black international consciousness. Right. That is about blackness. Mm -hmm. Right. And and, and so all of a sudden it's like, oh, what I thought I knew about indigenous and about black. (laughs) It's like completely like I got to rethink all of that. Right. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. been a super productive place for me to kind of kind of engage those questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shout out. Thanks to my Australian friends who have kind of pushed me on those things. Yeah. Oh, John sure. May. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, my goodness, just so very refreshing, if you ask me, especially in the territorial United States, where, let's be real, conversations are not always as intellectually invigorating <laughs> as they could be to be able to really learn from other places and conversations happening with colleagues globally. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, So you said that that was one project that you were beginning to get into now. I would be curious to know what some of the other contemporary work is that you've been up to. So I just have a book that's out called American Studies, A User's Guide. Um, It was out in August. It's co-written with Alexander Olson, who's uh, one of my former grad students and a quite brilliant scholar of American studies. And basically, you know, it aims to be a kind of intervention in the field, sort of going back and rereading the historiography of American studies and putting a kind of stake in the ground for it having a distinctive methodology. And so we kind of work through a number of things um, in that book. And it's a fun, it's a fun read. You know, we do analysis of toilet paper roll dispensers and (laughs) Hamilton and things like that. So it's got a very American studies kind of feel to it. And I'm trying to finish a book right now on uh, an American Indian artist in the 1930s who is completely outside all of the kind of discursive frames. Okay, not all, most of the discursive frames surrounding Indian modernism as primitivism, right, which comes out of Oklahoma and Santa Fe schools and things like that, flat, two-dimension, traditional subject matter. So she's a kind of modernist of the 19-teens and 20s, European-inflected, but interested in people like, you know, maybe Charles DeMuth and, and portraits, so just portraits of kind of celebrity figures and the art's quite beautiful. So it's a major, I think it's a major reclamation project that should reorient American Indian arts. And, and because it should reorient that, it should reorient American art in general. We'll see, you know, we'll see. I've got some more work to do on it, but it's visually beautiful and stunning and smart, super smart. Mm. Yeah. So I'm doing that. And I got one more project. Well, I've got a couple more projects, but I got one more project I'm going to kind of dive into pretty quickly, which is for a really long time, I've been interested in the meteor storms of November 1833, which are visible all across the continent and are stunning. You know, there's, there's thousands, hundreds of thousands of meteors that come down in this, you know, and, and, and fireballs that kind of last to go across the sky for long periods of time. And so it's interesting in the sense that like everybody, every social group, Everybody in America, in North America, 
goes out and looks at it and says, whoa, I might be having a bit of an epistemological crisis. <laughs> I, I should say something about this in ways that might be meaningful later on. You know, so slaves see this and, and masters record it. Uh, Indian people use it as a marker for winter counts and calendar kinds of things. Scientists in Philadelphia and Boston sort of crowdsource it as a, as a way of sort of science, first crowdsource scientific investigation. Some people have, have argued um, Mormons and you know, evangelicals sort of see it and think the world is ending. So it's a kind of a um, tiny slice of time in which to look at sort of the American 1830s, which is not exactly my period, but so I'm looking forward to sort of jumping into that and getting to know that time period a little better. Um, yeah. So that's the stuff I'm doing. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I know that sounds quite curious. I wasn't familiar with that event, so I can only imagine what some of the storytelling might have been that emerged out of it. Mm -hmm. I have actually a couple of questions for you about a specific essay um, to turn course a little bit. So this counterculture Indians and the New Age. Many of our listeners are in the Bay Area in California. And so as you can imagine, even though much of what you write about is stemming from the 60s and the 70s, some parts of the Bay are kind of trapped in time in terms of continuing to play out some of those performances. And I know that it might be really illuminating for some of our listeners to hear you speak to that. So I would love to actually just read a quote of from that essay and hear whatever reflections you might have on it. So um, one that was particularly striking to me was, let's see here, quote, Whenever white Americans have confronted crises of identity, some of them have inevitably turned to Indians. And then a few lines later, um, so end quote, beginning quote, uh, it should come as no surprise that the young men and women of the 1960s and 70s, bent on destroying an orthodoxy tightly intertwined with the notion of truth, and yet desperate for truth itself, followed their cultural ancestors in playing Indian to find reassuring identities in a world seemingly out of control, not only in the communes, but in politics, environmentalism, spirituality, and other pursuits. Indianness allowed counterculturalists to have it both ways. In these arenas, we can also witness the continued unraveling of the connections between meanings and social realities as in these disjunctures became most obvious when white people in Indian costume turned and found themselves face to face with native people, end quote. Mm. And so again, I know that you're speaking to a very specific moment in US history, and yet its echoes are still so resonant in some areas today. And so I would love to hear you elaborate on that piece, please. Gosh, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it is one of the things like if I were to go back and rethink this book, I mean, the critique of the book, justifiably, right, is there's not that many Indians in it, you know. Mm -hmm. And of course, my response would be, ah, it's not actually about Indians. It's an American mm -hmm. studies book that is truly about American culture mm -hmm. in a swing for the fences kind of way, right? You know, big statements about American culture. But the dynamic of like, of, of playing Indian and then turning to see a real Indian person and kind of confronting that is the dynamic of the settler colonial, right? It's the dynamic that says, I know no matter, I know this can never be right because I'm not giving you your land back, right? Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it may be the dynamic of, uh, of post-slavery society also, right? Mm -hmm. I know that I took this from you. I know that this, and I know that this history will never be right. I mean, I think this is a hard thing to come to terms with, right? Because everyone wants history to be right. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not gonna be right, you know? It'll never be right. So, so that sense of like, 
turning out of a world of fantasy and desire that is can be very productive, you know, for people, right, into a kind of hard material reminder. You know, my friend Kevin Gover, the director of the Museum of American Indians, says, look, you know, here's the deal. It's like America's not that comfortable with Indians, right? Because they, they can't get past the history. The history can never be made right, right? So it feels to me like that's kind of, that's the big meta version in some ways of, of what's going on there. So to make that book stronger would have meant to look for more opportunities where these folks would have, across the range, would have run into more Indian people and how they would have thought about it and responded. And it is interesting, right? So if you go back to those child-rearing things at the turn of the 20th century, there's a bunch of Indians who are engaged in this stuff. My own great aunt, who I put in there, I could have done better by those people, I think, you know, in the, you know, in the book. And that the 60s chapter, in some ways, you know, is also coming out of the 50s chapter, this sort of hobbyist chapter. And in part of the argument in the hobbyist chapter is that uh, when hobbyists become so interested in authenticity, when authenticity becomes the highest value, they're willing to let Indian people be the judges of authenticity. And all of a sudden, there's a different form of engagement with Indians, right? One that is no less laden with power relations, right? But which does recognize a kind of Indian expertise and authority um, that's not present in some of these other things. And so for me, I think in some ways, writing that last chapter, which wasn't part of the dissertation, right? So that's the later thing that gets added on later, the later thing that gets added on later. I mean, of course, what, what many people wanted me to do as a kind of concluding thing was Indians who dress up like Indians. But that actually didn't feel, or do international Indians who dress up like Indians, right? International people who dress like Indians. Um, but that didn't feel quite right to me. So in any case, I mean, coming out of that chapter where Indian people actually seem to have a certain kind of authority and there was a kind of a possibility for something that looked like a sort of commensurability, if, if nothing else, and to find myself sort of thinking about the lack of Indians in the, in the 60s. And, and I totally have to... I mean, I've got a number of people who know this history better than I have actually done kind of correctives on some of the details of the counterculture stuff, which I've, you know, completely accepted as, you know, as good critiques and good rereadings of it. I got to say, for me, it came out of, on the one hand, a super dark feeling as a kid growing up in the 60s and watching sort of 60s stuff and where for many people, the counterculture was exuberant. You know, for me, it looked a little, it wasn't so exuberant. It just, and that was sort of a personal, in some ways, a personal kind of thing. So it came out a bit out of that. It came a lot out of being in Boulder. And, and in particular, kind of growing up outside of Boulder, going up to Boulder, seeing Boulder, going um, to New Haven, um, you know, and I'd never really been East. I, did, I thought New Haven was like, the Ivy League and it was going to be Ivy and you know I thought it was going to be Princeton <laughs> but it was New Haven and you know and and so those New Haven years in a lot of ways were um super good years for me confronting like no these are this is a place where you have to think hard about race and poverty and ethnicity and all of this kind of stuff and like when you walk down the street you know you're implicated because people read you in certain kinds of ways and then coming back to Boulder and finding it to be this la la land, you know, kind of nirvana sort of space, it just, I gotta say, it was, um, and people would kill to live in Boulder, right? You know, it's just people love Boulder. And I came back to Boulder and I really, really didn't like it. Now, it's not like I love New Haven, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just like, our car's always getting broken into and, you know, all of that kind of stuff, right? But I couldn't come back to Boulder in the same way, you know? And I mean, what I found was just me teaching at the University of Colorado right? The last best job in the universe, university professor, 
and you know, and I'm dropping my kids off at daycare, going to work, and thinking like, damn, how lucky am I? I can't believe it. This is great. And finding that every other parent was basically like decked out in spandex and having conversations that went like this. Oh, what are you doing today? Oh, you know, I'm going to like, you know, ch ch channel some crystal shamanic energy. I'm going to go fly <laughs> fishing, stop in the for coffee at the Trident, checking with my broker, you know, pick up the kids. What are you doing? Ah, oh, pretty much the same. You know, it's like, I just found that like what had been Boulder as a sort of, you know, a spatial object desire for me, you know, for so long was repulsive. Right? <laughs> you know? It's like, and even as I was sort of copying to all of my own privilege, right? It's like, so this is the problem, right? When you set a position of privilege and you see people who have like much, much more privilege, mm -hmm. right? And that it's, you seem to have built it and Boulder seem to have built a community around privilege and around a sort of unwillingness to be self-reflective about this. And it's no coincidence that the people who went on the Amazon site and completely trashed this book were all Boulder new age people, <laughs> right? Of course. You know, they absolutely hated it, you know? But the fact is, it's like, it felt weird to me and it felt inappropriate and it felt... If I could even um, get my head around this, it felt like such a declension from the 1950s. Mm. So I ended up, I mean, this is a big, long kind of answer to this, that it ended up having a probably unwarranted sort of current of hostility in it. And ironically, right, because I had really struggled to develop, I mean, the moment where I developed historical empathy, I think, in this book was dealing with these fraternal people in the 1830s. I was like, how stupid are these guys? I can't believe this. You know, it was like I had no empathy for them whatsoever as historical actors. And only over time and with, you know, a fair amount of um, kind of energy, critical energy, I was like, oh, no, I get it. Like these are working class people, you know, who are striving for some minor level of status in some minor kinds of organizations. And I actually have to understand and get myself into their headspace, you know, a little bit better. I should have been able to do that, I think, a little bit more around the new age stuff in ways that I probably didn't. And I think it probably would have been a better example or better analysis if I had done that. Instead, what it ends up being is a bit it is it goes back to this postmodern thing, right? Mm. The desire for truth in a world in which truth is is kind of, you know, sort of meaningless. And, you know, I, in some ways, analytically, you know, postmodernism became a little bit of the kind of crutch on which that chapter ended up kind of resting in ways that like, ah, maybe I'm not so happy with that anymore. And not just because of the sort of datingness of the theory, sure, but because, sure. I mean, what you just read sounded really smart to me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, um, but maybe not as good as it should have been or could have been. Of course, this is what we do with our books, right? You know, sure. it's, mm -hmm. it's what we should do with our books. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, and there's so much and there's certainly something to be said also for folks uh, being open to the affect that can come through uh, between the lines of some of those passages as an invitation to also know that empathy can cut in all of the directions uh, and that unto itself adds an additional sort of texture that's important in a context where Native folks can be both so simultaneously hyper-visible and invisibilized. And so that's something, you know, for example, with the phenomena like Burning Man, uh, so many folks sincerely wonder, do folks, have you, you know that there are real Indigenous peoples? How do you, what is going on? So even any invitation to stage that kind of confrontation, so to speak, could potentially be really illuminating for some folks that do engage in some of these practices, I think. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always the, you know, I mean, it's one of the less frequently, but I think nicely effective kind of responses to like, you know, Washington football team fans saying like, would you wear the mascot into an Indian bar? Mm-hmm. And, and how, what would you say? And how would it work? Well, uh, right. I mean, because it just forces very quickly and economically, right, a confrontation with the materiality of real people. Precisely. Right. And so my final question for you around that actually is one last quote that I would uh, (laughs) love to share and to get your feedback around or your ideas around. Um, So from that same chapter, you say, quote, the disconnections of the 1960s and 70s may have reached peak development in the activities of the New Age, a movement for an aging counterculture. And then I do cut a couple of lines here, so some ellipses in my notes. Heavily okay. based in self-help and personal development therapies, its proponents await a large-scale change in human consciousness and a utopian era of peace and harmony. In New Age quests, I can see the long shadows of certain strands of postmodernism, increasing reliance on texts and interpretations, runaway individualism within a rhetoric of community, the distancing of Native people, and a gaping disjuncture between a cultural realm of serious play and the power dynamics of social conflict. New Age thinking tends to focus on ultimate individual liberation and engagement with a higher power, having little interest in the social world that lies between self and spirit, end quote. And so, of course, the sort of optional postmodernist theorizing notwithstanding, I'm curious uh, to hear if you could break that down a bit for listeners, because it does seem evocative of exactly what you're speaking to. We can mythologize and essentially pretend, right? So play, make believe, put on costumes and the like. Uh, to be sure, and things shift inevitably when you actually come face to face with the folks that you're dressing up as, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, gosh, I mean, this seems so quaint, you know, to think about the new age these days, right? I mean, it's like, (laughs) but I think it's like, I mean, it's not disconnected, right? In some ways, I mean, the critique of the the narcissistic millennial, you know, for example, I mean, you could draw a line back to the narcissistic new age person, Right. As a as a as a well-resourced version, right, of the non-well-resourced, you know, narcissistic kind of um, millennial. I mean, I think for me, in some ways, the sense that you could build a community through pay for play workshops, through everybody reading a Lane Andrews book, through um, buying super cool fetishes in Taos and Santa Fe, um, you know, these kinds of things. It felt like a kind of a veneer of community that wasn't actually a kind of vital community. And maybe it, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it was for some some people. But I think that last bit is super important to me, right? The sort of sense that like you could have as an individual kind of direct access to kind of this great mysterious higher, higher power, you know, however you want to think about it. And that's the that's the key, however you want to think about it. So, I mean, you can go back to a, a, a very traditionalist kind of thing and say like, oh, I'm going to join a church and this is the social structure in which I will have access to a kind of higher power. And what I'll have is every Sunday a kind of reminder that there's an ethic and a morality that I have agreed to believe in. And I just need a, an infusion of will to get me through the week and to get me doing better. I actually do believe in that, you know, like I'm not hostile to going to church. And I do find that I get something out of it in that regard, right? Like I try to be a good person every day. I fail. I forgive myself and I try harder, you know, but without that social structure, right? If I get to define all the rules, 
then it just feels to me like that the slippage there is insufficient. And that I think was part of my issue kind of with the new age stuff. And if you were to map it onto a kind of, I mean, I don't want to sort of imagine the kind of generic uh, American Indian sort of spiritual practice, right? But there's a kind of model in which might've made sense to new agers, right? Which is to say, I, the individual will have a vision. I'll have direct unmediated contact with the other, the holy other, right? Um, and I will take meaning out of that. And that was a super easy kind of transportable model. Not true though, right? Mm -hmm. When I go up and I have a vision, what do I do? I come back down and I sit down with all the old people and they tell me what it means. And the social mediation of that, right, ends up being super important. So for me, I mean, it's both, it's that New Agers, it's, it felt to me like we're trying to short circuit what I sort of sensed as kind of the most important elements of how spiritual experience works, right? Which is one, like, I do believe in something that's wholly other than myself, right? Wakantankar, you know, however we want to think about it. I think that thing is out there, you know? Um, uh, I think that there's a kind of individual psychology, for lack of a better word, right, that has to do with kind of spirit, spiritual, ethical, and moral in the ways that those things fit together. Right. And that play out in somatic forms through the body. Like these things are all kind of important. And I think there are so super important social mediating things that, that not only mediate between this thing and the me. Right. They mediate between that and they make meaning out of it. But that this thing and the me contribute to the social thing. Right. And if we're unless we're gifting to that social thing that is part of a spiritual practice. Right. We're not we're not living up to a certain obligation, right, to the world, to that mysterious thing, or to ourselves, or to other people. And, you know, I, I wish I could say, like, oh, I do this all the time. I mean, like, I, you know, I practice what I preach. I'm always, you know, making some kind of, you know, I'm not. I mean, but I would like to think that I'm aware of that, right, and that there is some sort of sense in which contribution to the social collective, right, doesn't always come out of, um, you know, a kind of critical position on theory and power, right? Or a kind of Marxist reading of what the social, it, a lot of times it comes out of sort of feelings that we don't quite understand um, that are about goodwill towards the other, towards, towards the whole and towards something that we could contribute to of which we could see ourselves being a part. Um, you know, so it's, that, that felt to me like the thing that was getting short circuited, you know, um, with new age stuff. And once it became, you know, and then once you injected, you know, a, a business model into it, mm -hmm. then it was, it was, you know, it, it was hard, became harder to read that much harder to redeem, you know, yeah. for me mm -hmm. to be sure. Right. Yeah. Thank you for elaborating upon that. Uh, well, I see that out of respect for your time, we are indeed coming to a close. I just wonder if you'd like to elaborate on or follow up on any of the topics that we've gotten into dialogue about so far. I, <laughs> I probably, probably not. I mean, I'll probably think of something later. Um, no, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's been a great conversation. This is like the most fun I've had in a long time. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, I am so stoked to be in dialogue. Same. Thank you so much for your time and energy. Well, my pleasure, my pleasure. Now, I know this dialogue may have been evocative for you. If you've been stolen from and caricatured, how can you healthfully release the rage and frustration of being in a society surrounded by confused, non-consensual thieves who think they're entitled to everything?
Or if you're a settler desperately yearning for authenticity, re-enchantment, or reconnection to land, how can you reunite with your lineages and the land bases of your ancestors? Why play dress up with other people's identities, cultures, rituals, and histories when you could be decolonizing this society and overthrowing imperialism? You know, making a positive impact for the sake of the earth and its inhabitants to whom humans owe so much. You too can unlearn entitlements and thievery, just say no to cultural appropriation and other forms of white supremacy, racism, and neocolonialism. If you'd like to learn more about the topics that Dr. Deloria and I discussed, check out liberationspring.com for our winter 2018 class titled Our Spirits, Ourselves. It starts the first week of January. All the course materials are available for free on the site, and you're welcome to apply for our online class from anywhere in the world. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyaya, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.